Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to Death by Champagne, the podcast here to keep you up at night. This week, we bring you the finale in our seven-part series on the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. We dedicate this entire episode to his arrest in 2001, his confessions after his arrest, and his sentencing hearing in 2003. We also cover the remaining four victims discovered throughout 2003 and later. This episode contains foul language, graphic discussions about rape, murder, child abuse, and necrophilia. We'll do our best to stay on track, but the bottles are popped. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Death by Champagne. I'm Olivia. And I'm Mackenzie. And this is your finale. Episode 7 in our multi-part series on the horrific Green River Killer piece of shit Gary Ridgway. We have made it together (laughs) through this seven-part I just told Olivia before we started recording, I feel like the old like vine video of the crazy family that used to post really good ones together of the little girl they're like we're gonna party happy new year and she like picks up a glass vase and screams oh yeah throws it on yes. the floor I was like that's <laughs> what I feel like right now yeah yeah absolutely we're ready to get this out to you yeah I don't even think we should talk about coronavirus because I can't too you much. guys I can't <laughs> we we're already not- we already talked about it for an hour before we started recording. Yeah, we can't do any more. The only thing I'm going to say about the state of our current world is that I hope everyone is taking this very seriously, but I hope that everyone can also take a moment to just do something they enjoy in the confines of their own home and their own space. Right. Take a bath, read a book, make a dessert. <laughs> 
I don't know, whatever that may look like to you. Just do something that makes brings you a little bit of joy. Just in the, the tiniest bit. <laughs> yep. And I know that's, that. That's it. That's all I'm saying. That's all we're contributing to what's happening right now. The only thing I will say from my, the only thing that like weighs on me is like I have tons of friends that are performers, waitresses, yes, workers oh that God. are definitely going to be displaced for the next several weeks if you have any extra cash flow and have money to send people tips through like Venmo, Cash yes. App, yes. support your friends who do not have a backup plan. Right. Or who do not have like an office job or a job at Apple who's getting paid to not work for the next couple weeks. Like, that's awesome that people have those opportunities, but, like, there are a ton of people who don't. Support your servers, everyone in the food industry, support your sex worker friends, support your artists. Yes. Find those people if you enjoy their content and you have the extra money, join their Patreon pages. Yes. Find any way you can that is safe to keep contributing to those people. Yes. And... Make sure your people are taken care of. Don't yes. drown in the news. No, don't do that. Whenever you get really, that. really yeah, upset do about what's going on, just look up Harry Styles. Great, great <laughs> advice. I listened to him on the way into work this morning. <laughs> I've been very inspired by our patron. Oh, Ken. yeah. I'm just like, yes. oh, good. I'm going to go on Ken's Instagram and yes. see what she's doing today. Look at all the <laughs> happiness that's happening. So with that... Now we're going to bring you more trash fire garbage. (laughs) We're going to submerge you into our finale, part seven of the series on Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. So just to bring everyone back to a reminder of the timeline. In May of 1983, Des Moines Police questioned. (laughs) Des Moines questioned. This is going to be a great time, I can tell. In May of 1983, Des Moines Police questioned Gary and the disappearance of Marie Malvar. In February of 1985, he was questioned by Randy Mullinex after the strangulation attack on Rebecca Gard. And in 1987, search warrants were executed on his home, vehicles, and job as part of the follow-up from the witness Paige Miley pertaining to the disappearance of Kim Nelson. David Reichert spends a lot of time checking in on the case and his victims' families. As sheriff, they all hoped he would be able to get more accomplished, but he makes the good point that leaders can only take an organization so far. If the goal is out of reach, no amount of time, money, or barking commands will produce the result you want, he says on page 235 of his book. He recalls that a moment he felt very disheartened was realizing that an upcoming documentary coming out covering the Green River murders would be shown on the History Channel. He saw the victims' relatives, friends, and officers that cared about their cases every day. It couldn't yet be history. It was still very real in the present for him. So check in. With Gary and Judith at this point, they live on South 348th Street in Auburn. It was the nicest house Gary had ever lived in. They made a big deal about saving for this house and making that step. It was just like one more Mm -hmm. plot point up in their really strategic, like, this is how we obtain everything we want, and then we can retire. Yeah. Yeah. It had lots of space and a beautiful front lawn that Judith tended to. Um, She does spend a lot of time in the beginning of her book describing the bathtub. And how much time they spent in the bathtub. Together? Yes. Oh. Yes. I don't need that image. Yeah. It's pretty scarring. (laughs) Uh, I think I touched on that in the very beginning, but like this is full circle. Her book starts at that house and then backtracks and goes through the timeline. Okay. So they were settling into life doing whatever they wanted when they wanted. 
What neither Gary or Judith was aware of was how close the Green River Task Force was to finally making the step of arresting Gary Ridgway for good. Um, really the only other bullet points up until the ramping up of the investigation are that Judith's favorite poodle dies. They had several dogs. They always got poodles. There is a very famous picture of Gary Ridgway in cut-off jorts. Yes. I don't know if they're cut off, but they're, like, very short. They're very short. That's just what men wore at the time. And he's holding one in each arm, and he's just the most disturbing, pedophilic-looking. Yeah. Knowing what you know about him, it's just, like, an image you can't can't, unsee. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And also, uh, Mary, Gary's mother, died suddenly on August 15th, Judith's birthday. She passed away from cancer. At her funeral, Judith uprooted some of the plants from their garden to give all of the siblings something to keep alive for Mary in their own homes. Mm-hmm. Which is horrifying, but also you have to remember, this is the woman who mm-hmm. scrubbed his genitalia. Uh, right. Till it was raw and he was, and he was horny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Okay. So in early 2001, um, we're checking in with Reichert from his book, Washington finally has the equipment and training they need to test available DNA from some of the cases. So items that they have recovered and kept track of for all these years include hair, minuscule paint samples, fibers, and semen. They've all been collected through the cases from the crime scenes, and now they can be tested to find a match. Tom Jensen, part of the task force, submitted biological samples found on six victims to the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab, and at this time they already had Gary Ridgway's DNA analyzed. Beverly Himmick, a forensic scientist, compared the vaginal swabs from Marcia Chapman and Carol Christensen to Ridgway's DNA and got a match. Another win was when the pubic hairs found on Opal Mill's body also matched Ridgway. And slowly, every DNA sample they could utilize matched Gary Ridgway. And just a note, if you read about this testing anywhere, it's called STR, or short tandem testing. I don't know what that means, but it might be relevant to someone else. Got it. I don't either. No, I don't know what it means either. So that's in March. So that's kind of happening early on. They are obviously aware that they probably have their guy for the Green River killings, which is huge. So in September, just to get even more information about Gary without bringing in any kind of like alarm bells to Judith or anyone involved with him currently, they pick up uh, his second wife and Dana ask, slash Marsha. Yes, Dana <laughs> slash Marsha. And ask if they can interview her about their sex life. And she confirms. We've already talked a lot about what she had to say in earlier episodes about their sex life. But it was at this moment that they kind of find all of this out. And when they find out that they had sex outdoors a lot, primarily, they ask her to drive them to any location locations that she can remember. And as she starts to drive detectives around, they realize that they're just going on a tour of body sites. Yep. Like constant. Every single place is like six women were found here. Four women were found here. Eight women were found here. Like it's a constant like realization of like what, like they do have him. Yeah. (laughs) Like this is it. With Judith, too, you'll see later that they... He didn't treat her in the same manner of, like, asking her to have sex outside. Yeah, yeah. But they would definitely hook up in the back of his truck mm-hmm. and similar... Th- like, they wouldn't mm-hmm. go... I don't think it was as interesting. direct of a path, but they camped in yes, all the same they camped. areas. Yes, they camped in a lot of same Yes. But, yeah, she didn't have sex with him outdoors. Ugh. Yeah. So, on September 10th, 2001, Tom Jensen called Riker and asked if they could meet. 
He never said what for, and Reichert agreed without asking. Jensen brought three papers into his office and laid them on the desk between them, face down. He told him to flip them over, and he saw that they were three identical, like, graphed charts. Or, like, figures on the page that were all exactly identical. Jensen picked up the first one and said, This one is from the DNA sample with Chapman. The second is from Mills. And he paused and finished, And this one is a suspect. He watched Reichert's face and continued, his name is in this envelope. I love this, I have like, chills. I, he, <laughs> oh, my God. He sat in his office and was like, I mean, I'm sure they hand you the, you know, the answer to your DNA test comes in, like, an envelope. Yeah. But that he sat there and was like, how could I possibly draw this out more? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I'm 19 sure. 19 years wasn't enough. <laughs> you want to run down the hall screaming, but it's also, yeah. like, we have to be quiet. Yeah. So, um, Reichert said before he could even touch the paper, he, like, breathlessly said, I know it's Gary Ridgway. And then I said, do you, though? Yeah, do you? I'm Which, sure they, who was he obsessed with? He wasn't obsessed with Gary Ridgway. They were all obsessed with Melvin Foster. Yeah, for a long he was time. obsessed with Melvin Foster. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I go back and forth on... I mean, I think at this moment, like... Well, right. Yeah, because he's the best suspect then. It's yeah. not like anyone was obsessed with him from the very beginning. No, right. I think right. some someone might have been, mm-hmm. but, like, he wasn't... Until yeah. recently, he wasn't like, yes, it's him, beat his door down. Yeah, yeah. So, last night's not do you, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just thought it was an interesting moment to observe as a bystander, looking back all these years later, as someone who has now read multiple books about the case, thinking, like, This is the moment where you can test everything that all Mm -hmm. of these years of like searching and hunting and questioning, interrogating and like gathering evidence. And that's something you've got three seconds to look at someone in the face and truly lay your gut on the line. Yeah. And say like, what if he had said it's someone else and been wrong? Oh, God. Like, did he truly think it was Gary Ridgway or did he think that that was the answer he needed to say? Not that any of that matters, um, but but it's just... It was an interesting concept for anyone. That just that moment where you can fully be honest and say, "I think it's this," mm-hmm. and then you you finally get instant gratification, or not. Yeah, yeah like or you're you wrong. Said, yeah, that's crazy. So the next day, as the nation was stunned by the events of 9/11, Reichert and team made calls to former task members, telling them that there was a big update in the Green River case, and asking them if they would leave their assignments to work with him again. They met a few days later at Faye Brooks's home, determined to keep it a secret. They laid out a plan for forming charges with the DA's office and divided up who was working on what case file. They had to start contacting witnesses that could potentially testify without giving up why. Most importantly, they had to tail Ridgeway and make sure he didn't kill anyone else. While they operated quietly, shielding their work even from other officers, they confirmed that it was Ridgeway's DNA that was found at the scene of Carol Christensen's murder. So we're up to November 15th. The task force is tailing Gary constantly, But one day, they lose him when he doesn't come home from work. They've staked out his house, so they know Judith left around midnight and returned with Gary, but they had no idea where he was for several hours that evening. So they're all panicking together, and they're like, I can't believe this fucking happened. We lost him. How could this possibly have happened? And one investigator calls Randy Mullinex and is like, okay, here's an update. We don't know where he is, but we're working on it. We still have guys at the house. They're watching Judith. And Mullinax, like, ducks behind a bookshelf and hides under a window and is like, I know where he is. He just pulled into the parking lot of the bookstore that I'm at. And he was there with his kids. So he has to, like, snatch his kids and run out of the shopping center and, like, 
try to hide until he's sure they can get back to their car without oh being seen. God. Because he was the one that dealt with Gary Ridgway all those previous oh. times. So he would for sure know his face. Well, no, he wouldn't, as we find out later. Truth. Yeah. But he was like, I gotta go before I get seen. So where Gary Ridgway was told from, I guess that now, before I say this, is a good point to remark, Current, like, currently, our main sources are three different books. Green River Running Red. Green River Serial Killer. And Chasing the Devil. Okay. So, we're kind of at this moment up until the end of this, telling it from all these different perspectives. Yes. Because they are told from different perspectives. So which is good yeah. and kind of confusing. So but. we're going to hit multiple timelines. <laughs> so, yeah. And tell the As events. we get through this, we're telling you where the source is from so you can kind of gather right. what's going on. So where Gary was, that morning he told Judith that his gas tank was low. So she gave him an extra $30 in cash. And as we've discussed, they were very habitual about their spending. She did all of the money handling. He gave her his paychecks and she dealt with it. So she made sure he had enough money for gas, breakfast, lunch, whatever it was for the day. And that was it. So he, But he did ask her for extra money on this particular day. So with 30 extra bucks, the temptation for paying for sex sparked within. The first one, woman he spotted as he drove on the SeaTac strip just so happened to be an undercover cop. And he pulled up beside her, asked her for a date. They agreed upon what they were going to do. And then she arrests him for solicitation. So now we switch to the point of view of Judith from Green River Serial Killer. The phone rang at the Ridgeway house and the police were on the other end of the line. And Judith did not hesitate to ask if they were sure they had the right number. She even goes so far during this arrest and others to say, like, it's all she can think of to say yeah. is, are you sure you have the right Gary Ridgway? Mm-hmm. When they tell her yes, it's certainly her Gary Ridgway they have in custody. Her blood ran cold and her heart pounded in her chest. They told her she would need to prepare to come get him, but it would probably be several hours. So a couple of days later, Reichert's task force finds out about this arrest. They lost track of him on the timeline because people outside their investigation arrested him and Without he was knowing. at the police station the entire time. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> they had is, no idea that he was anybody that needed to be watched. Yeah, it's a very, like, I don't even know what the term for that type of situation is. It's like, if you had told, Messy. everybody would have known, so you couldn't tell. Yeah. But at the same time, if you had just told the rest of the department, hey, we need to, right. have, like, we need to tread sensitively around this case. Yep. So, still from Green River Serial Killer, Judith finally hears from Gary... And he exclaims that she needs to come pick him up outside the Kent Kmart. When she got there, he was out of breath because he ran there as soon as he was released to avoid seeing anyone he knew. He did not want anyone to place him at the police station. He explained it away by saying his tailgate was down. He pulled over to try to fix it and put it back up. And the police stopped him. They did ask him about solicitation. And then they took him in to question him. And he just explains all of it away. as like, I bet they took 40 people in this weekend. Like, I'm just mm-hmm. one of a dozen. Mm-hmm. I was on the side of the road. I'm sure it didn't mm-hmm. look good because I was in this area where there's a lot of sex workers. So mm-hmm. it's fine. I didn't do he anything. He says that his window was down, his oh. back window. So we had to oh. pull over and fix the window. Oh, I got tailgate. From oh, it might have been tailgate. Whichever. Tailgate, <laughs> window, whatever. He had these, to fix something on his truck that was These are was the kind broken. of details. 
Yeah, these are the details that get messy and mixed up throughout three yeah. different versions of the same event happening. Yeah. So, yeah, he just says, they probably thought I was someone else. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And she mm-hmm. just remembers looking at his mm-hmm. smile as he grabbed her hand and was like, you don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. I was not doing anything to run out on you. Mm-hmm. She just remembers thinking, like, there's no way anyone that looks at me like that could be lying to me. Which is just yeah. fucking chilling. Yeah. So our timeline has finally run up to November 30th, the final arrest. Sue Peters and John Madsen actually go into Kenworth to question him first. They know that he's at work that day because obviously they've been tailing him. And, and they, they call. They call his supervisor and let him oh, yeah. know the police activity will be happening that day and that no one can know about it. So even more so people So he is involved in. in Gary Ridgway going to talk to them. Because he says there's a couple people who want to talk about a custom paint job outside. Can you go talk to them? And then it's cops. Yeah. Yeah. So they ask about Carol Christensen, and he thinks he's being helpful. In one of the most sinister details of this entire, any of the books that I've read, he is downright helpful. So he thinks to them he's more than willing to sit down and listen to the details, pretending to be a person who has never heard what happened to her. Mm-hmm. This was the victim that like had the wine bottle placed between her legs, fish yeah, on her body. fish on her neck. Extremely desecrated crime scene. Mm-hmm. Ex- like just vulgar for Meat. no she reason. She had like sausage on her. Yes. Like, yeah. So he's more than happy to sit there with them and discuss these details and try to explain it from the perspective of someone who is innocent but is like... But is like trying to be helpful. Interested, yeah. yeah. And like anyone would want to talk about that. Anybody, yeah. like, oh, you have salacious gossip? That's how he treats right. it. Right. So he says, yeah, he's seen her and she he knows who she is, but he never took her on a date. This is a crucial fuck up. His DNA was found in her vagina. So all this is doing is feeding him shit to get him to lie and it's giving them material to use against mm. him later. Hmm? So the undercover officers inside Kenworth... Who, that was more communication with his boss. They're there to protect everyone else and listen to him after the questioning. Uh. So they wait. The officers outside wait to get to get the signal from the team inside. And they say, okay, he's clocking out. He walks outside Kenworth and cars come up from all sides as soon as he exits the building. Arresting officers Randy Mullinex and Jim Doyen tell him he's being taken in for the murders of multiple women in King County. To which he just says, okay, no fight. Jeez. Yeah. So flipping to the perspective of Judith from Green River Serial Killer, Sue Peters and Matt Haney come to the Ridgeway home after they leave Kenworth. Well, after Sue leaves Kenworth, she gets with Matt and those two officers go to their house and tell Basically Judith. Basically at the same time. Yes. Too. Like at, it's like all timed out. Like, right. As Gary is being put in handcuffs, they are at Judith's house to talk to her. Because they have to keep her separated. She can't get any phone calls before yes. anything happens. Mm-hmm. So... From the moment they enter the home, the phone is ringing off the hook. She, as soon as she finds out why they're there, like, he's been arrested, like, days previously, and she's panicking. She just says she remembers being, feeling like she was on the edge of a seizure for hours and having to tell her body, like, you can't do that right now. You cannot do that right now. You can't be helpless. You have to defend Mm. your home and your life. Mm. So she's very stunned. And I mean, their main job, it seems, for the first couple hours of questioning her is just to keep her fucking upright at the table. She's floored. She can't give any answers that help them. She has nothing bad to say about Gary, which makes perfect sense for her. He's never mistreated her that Mm -hmm. she's aware of. 
So Sue gets up to unplug the phone, and at one point Judith wanders to the front door and opens it after there's a persistent knock and was met with flashing lights. Sue pulled her away, but not quickly enough. There was a photo that was caught of her, and it was splashed Mm -hmm. all over the news Mm -hmm. as the story broke. I looked for this picture for yeah, a long Anne time. Yeah, Anne mentions it too. And I couldn't find it. You couldn't it. find it. But mm-hmm. it says she looks like a mere, like a quarter of a ghost yeah. standing outside yeah. the door. That like there is no expression on her face. Yeah. She just looks like a broken shell of a person. Yeah. So they're there. I mean, yeah, like Mackenzie said, to keep her occupied and busy and not involved with reporters or anything like that. But they're also there to like get an idea of Gary Ridgway from... The perspective of the person he's been married to for 14 years. Like, so they, and like you said, she only has good things to say. You know, he was the love of her life. He made her feel like a newlywed every day. Like, he was perfect in everything she could have asked for. They eventually get to the point of asking her about the Green River case. You know, asks if she knows about it, if she's ever followed it up, you know, if she's aware of all the victims and she she admits that yes like and it is very sad you know she says things like that and then she tells them that she has a drawer that she has saved a bunch of articles newspaper articles clippings and she has a drawer in the house filled with them because she you know she says that it's so sad and like she's just kept up on it like that kind of thing and then it's not until later that they press her more and they start to just you know make her I think slowly realize like the red flags that maybe she should have noticed. And she tells them that Gary saved those articles. Yes. Not her. Yes. But that she knew about them. And I truly think that like, that's not even, I mean, there is obviously some level of her like stand by your man. She's, yeah. Yeah. She's very much defended him throughout all of this. And I think even though there is that element to it, I think she truly thinks that everything he did, she was so much a part of that she did include herself. She was like, yeah, we kept those articles. Right. We like mm-hmm. watched that t- unfold together. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. she's like, it's not nefarious or weird. Other people do that. Because mm-hmm. I think back then people did. You did clip out prominent oh, yeah. news stories to keep. Yes. Or like, you know, you're my, totally. you're my great grandma who filled like half of a trailer with newspapers <laughs> for no fucking reason. So um, at this point, she... Isn't specifically told what's happening. She knows that he is in custody and she is not allowed to stay at her house anymore. They have search warrants for the house, the yard, all of their vehicles. So they take her to the Red Lion Hotel. The same hotel where he used to drive past the bus stop and troll for sex workers to prey on his victims. So they take her there, get her entered in through a back door And she's crying at this point. I mean, obviously she's crying through the whole thing, but she remembers crying very hard at this point and saying, I can't be here by myself. And so they said they would find someone to be there with her. And when she gets there, her sister in Latina, who is married to Gary's younger brother, is there. Oh, okay. Okay. So they're in the room together. And I mean, there is a ton of detail in the book Green River Serial Killer about this that is great to read if you really want the entire story from top to bottom. Yeah. Um, I mean, they just lay in that room together for three days and sob. They said so they alternate between watching TV, drinking boxed wine, and just drinking and crying until they're exhausted and they fall asleep and starting the cycle all over again when they wake up. I can't. So Tina was there for three days and then Marie comes after Tina finally is like, I have to clean myself up. I have to go back to my own house. Her daughter Marie shows up and she meets her with a box of hair dye and has a very like, fiery attitude and says we're not gonna wallow 
you need to watch the news. You need to stay smart about what's going on. But like you also need to distance yourself a little bit and start having normal thoughts and like pull yourself back. So they dye her hair. And then Judith mentions that she's hungry. And she was like, why haven't you eaten? You're in this hotel room. Order room service. Yeah. And Judith was like, we could never afford room We, we could never afford room service at a hotel like this. Like that's just so far removed from something she would ever spend money on that she just hasn't fed herself. Yeah. In like three days in this hotel room. She has solely been drinking. Mm, so her daughter's it. like, uh, the police are paying for this. Clearly not you. So she calls and it's like, we're getting all the appetizers, all these entrees. So she feels really bold at that point and her daughter's attitude starts to rub off on her. So later that night when she's finally there by herself for a minute, she decides she's going to go outside her hotel room. She, I think, is probably a little tipsy and is like, mm-hmm. I don't fucking care. Let people yeah. come see me. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. She, like you get to a moment of like defiance oh, and like yeah. fuck them. Like, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. And that's a, and it will fluctuate. Yep. <laughs> it goes all yep. over the place. So she walks outside, sure. makes it down the hallway. She sees Matthew, Gary's son. They have a lot of people connected to the case holed up in this hotel and have told them not to leave their rooms so they don't see each other. Jeez, this seems not not good. I mean, it's not good on a lot of levels. Disorganized, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you would think that you would put them in different places. Yeah. So she runs up to him. Because, I mean, that's her child. That's her stepchild from from childhood. He was very young when they got married. He was super young, yeah. So he's a full-grown adult now. He's 26, and him and his wife are standing there. She runs up and hugs him and then kind of has this moment of consciousness that his wife's family is watching her, and they're, like, everyone is uncomfortable. So they all just, like, separate and leave. But you're not uncomfortable. Your own, like, your husband is his son, lady. Like, that, like, his wife. Like, right. I mean, I think everyone's, like, pitying, uncomfortable. She just realizes, like... That's, you know, that's when you backtrack from the, I'm going to fucking leave this room. Yeah, that's yeah. when it turns into like, oh, fuck, I got to go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to deal with this. People are treating me differently and yeah. I don't want to be a part of it right like, now. Like, <laughs> just kidding. I'm not prepared. Yeah. So the newly box-dyed brown-haired Judith needs clean clothes. She's been there for several days and she calls Matt Haney and she's like, I have to go back to my house. Will you take me there? And he prepares her that it's going to be rough. The house and yard are utterly destroyed, which kills her. It was like, she said it's like not a moment had passed since they had questioned her in her own kitchen, seeing her garden torn up and everything mm-hmm. that like made her home yeah. a safe space to Which her. Which she worked a lot on their house to, and yeah. Gary let her do anything to it. Like he, yeah. he was not involved in decorating. He didn't care what she put up. So it was, yeah, very much like curated to her tastes. Yeah. So yeah. they go through it. She's picking up clothes and another tidbit that makes it so sad she said she was so disoriented and upset from seeing how wrecked the house was that she didn't see her animals and it didn't connect with her later she was like i was in my own house and i didn't even like stop to try to find a cat or to like see one of the dogs that she just like got her clothes and then was like you have to get me the fuck out of here um she gets very angry being inside the house and finds uh within herself a level of rage that she has not experienced in this situation yet she thinks about Mary and is like, it is a good thing she's gone and with the good Lord because she would not be fucking having this. She was like, oh, she would God. come unglued. Could you imagine? So Judith held that anger for all of them. The next few weeks for her are very painful, confusing, and tiring as she navigates a life as an outsider quarantined to the hotel. 
At the house, carpet is just missing in every room. Jewelry in their cars are missing. Her underwear is scattered all over their bedroom. And it's clear at that point, it's like a breaking point for her that nothing will ever be the same. Yeah. Nothing can I'm be changed. Like, this is so sad. I can't even fathom. I mean, I didn't cry while I was reading it because I'm a, a dead person inside, but it's... it's That's heartbreaking. Yeah. If I was yeah. in the right mindset when I read it, I would cry. You you had nothing to do with this and your whole life is being torn apart. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. So, gonna backtrack a tiny, tiny bit to cover kind of Anne Rule's perspective because she is very involved in the case from the beginning. I mean, she wrote The Stranger Beside Me. She was... She knew Ted Bundy and this all happened immediately after that. So she was very involved with obviously writing not just true crime novels, but like newspaper articles for different entities, etc. So from her perspective, uh, just like the 1987 search warrant, this arrest was kept very quiet. The police and city didn't need another William Stevens, who we talked about last episode. And besides, many weren't even aware that the task force was back together. Like, the public didn't know Mm -hmm. the task force was a thing anymore. Although they tried to keep it very quiet, people knew something big was going on. Anne Rule received numerous phone calls from reporters on November 30th and from other colleagues throughout the day asking if she had heard anything. And she hadn't. She, you know, she wasn't an investigator. She wasn't actively, you know, Mm -hmm. like... She told the stories after the fact. And so, I think at this point, she's probably just like puttering around her house, writing some other story, making tea. Oh, she's like, yes. I don't know what's happening. Yes, absolutely. So by 5 p.m. that day, she had three major network reporters with cameras at her house. They already knew his name and were asking what she had heard about Gary Ridgway. She received a message on her answering machine around 6 p.m. that same night from Dave Reichardt. In quote, saying, we caught him, Anne. We've arrested the Green River Killer. As she waited for this story to come to a close before finishing her final book on him, she had written 19 books in between from starting from starting being a part of this case to actually him being arrested. She had written 19 books. That's insane. Yeah. So still November 30th, we move back to the perspective of David Reichert. Before he can participate in any questioning, he has to address the public and make the announcement that everyone has waited to hear since 1982. So I have part of his statement from his book to the press the evening of the arrest. He fought to keep his composure as he read, Today, at approximately 3 p.m., detectives from the King County Sheriff's Office arrested a 52-year-old man for investigation of homicide. Detectives have probable cause to believe he is responsible for the deaths of four women. The women killed are Opal Mills, Marsha Chapman, and Cynthia Hins, all of whom were found in the Green River on August 15th of 1982. In addition, we believe he is responsible for the death of Carol Christensen, whose body was found on May 8th, 1983 in the woods near Southeast, 242nd Street and 248th Avenue Southeast in Maple Valley. The man we arrested is Gary Leon Ridgway. Many of the reporters in the room had followed the investigation for decades and tried to get him to say the words Green River Killer. All he could say was there is much to be learned about him. Which is, I mean, so... Obviously, you can't imagine even how excited they are that they have finally got him. People who are 
been involved, not even if they haven't been involved since the beginning, but like then to not be able to say that because yeah. obviously you can. You only have evidence on four victims at this point. Well, I mean, who yeah. happen to be on your list of the Green River Killer? Because I mean, they are. I mean, we do. We find out much later and throughout the course of the investigation, they're saying this case might not match up. It might not yeah. be that. It might be multiple people. Which I think there's a good enough pattern at this point that right a right. lot of it but they is, can't say that yeah yeah they, they just can't say it he does yeah. talk about for a while like the energy in the room and what it was like to be he was like i just had this moment of like absolutely floating like couldn't feel yeah. the floor oh, underneath yeah. me yeah when i walked into my desk and sat down and he like the first thing he said was like thank you for gathering here today and then he said he kind of like laughed and was like in this really small hot room i didn't <laughs> expect there to be this many people here <laughs> oh my gosh and then he said that he as he's talking like he's alternately trying not to smile and trying not to cry and then like Jeez. all of the reporters in the room were just like no one's supposed to have any emotion about this you have to maintain a neutral stance and report things from the midline and he was like every face in the room was just like people trying so hard not to cry or people taking notes like grinning like psychos yeah just like holy shit this is happening oh man So when they first bring him in, he seems really calm and like he wasn't surprised. Like when they arrested him and told him he was being charged with multiple murders in King County, he just said, okay, which I maybe I was trying to play this like. I guess if you're in shock. Well, I think every, every episode of every TV show that shows some bad boy being arrested, they, you know, they know the fucking routine. They stop and turn and put their hands behind their back without being asked. Mm, and then mm-hmm. you find out three quarters of the way through the episode that it wasn't them. Mm-hmm. So he's just like, okay, let's do this again. Arrest mm. Gary again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it's that attitude. That's true. That is true. So I think that's where the not being surprised comes in. But they block the windows of the interrogation room that they lead him to with notices and huge pieces of paper that say Ridgeway, Green River. Reichert said they wanted him to know immediately that they were going after him for everything. So inside the walls of the police station, everybody was saying Green River. Yeah. Because the intent was immediately to terrify him and say, like, this is 40 plus counts of murder. Yes. Yes. You're fucked. Yeah. From the beginning, you're fucked. Mm -hmm. Nothing will help you. Mm -hmm. So they presented him with the evidence for over an hour. And while he did look carefully at what they had, he never spoke. He would just, like, agree neutrally. Be like, okay, that's what you have. Moving on to the next point. Jeez. So early on into their interrogation of him, he wanted a lawyer. And he, like Mackenzie said, really only answered okay. He didn't He didn't actively participate in the questioning. Whether that, I mean, other than asking for a lawyer. He was also placed in ultra-security, in an ultra-security cell in King County Jail, which means he was essentially watched 24-7. Uh, fun fact, checking in from Dave Reichert's book, Randy Mullinex was involved with this case from the very beginning, and when he left that night, they well, there was another part, um, a bit in it, where he asks for a lawyer, and so the lawyer that he secures comes to the jail and then like all of the police have to leave the room and they give them space to conference together and decide how they're going to proceed because like obviously your lawyer coming to talk to you is not the end of the evening. Your lawyer has to leave at some point. And so finally they interrupt and they walk in the room and they're like, we understand that you're allowed to have counsel, but you're going to have a long fucking time to talk to each other. So you're going to be taken to the cell now and left for the evening. Your lawyers can leave. So Randy Mullinex waited around that night. They were like, why aren't you going home? And he was like, I'm taking those handcuffs. 
So he waited until they got him in a cell and they took those handcuffs. He arrested Gary with the handcuffs of uh, a former coworker named Paul Smith. He had worked on the investigation with him and died in 1985 and did not get to see the end of the case. So he presented him to his widow and said, like, he helped us all the way to the end. That was really nice. So the very next day, December 1st, is when everyone got a look of Gary Ridgway, especially anyone on the West Coast. I'm sure all the papers posted a photo of him. And from Ann Rule's perspective, you know, she says she opened the Seattle paper that morning and, like, had wondered, you know, was trying to, like, think through her memory at any moment. Have I seen this man before? Would I have ever thought he was the Green River Killer? And she couldn't, she was like, I truly didn't recognize him. And then her daughter called her and said, do you remember I told you about that man who came to our book signings, the one who leaned against the wall and just watched you, the one who never said anything and never bought any books? And she said, it was Gary Ridgway. Like once she saw his picture in the paper. So he did go to Ann Roll's book signings. Like he was in the room when she talks about, she talked about the Green River Killer. She gave a presentation on it and says like, you never know. He could be in this room right now. He was there. Yeah. Like, well, she literally says that. Because she says it in, like, a... They look like us. They look like your neighbor. They, you know... Oh, yeah. Serial killers. They look like everyone else. Like, he could be here right now. And he was. And, and just like we touched on, I think, in the first episode, Ooh. he went to events like that and watched other investigations to find out what not to do and yes. how to cover his tracks. Yes. Which is... Yes. Oddly more bone chilling for someone who was so stupid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in the following weeks, um, all of his homes, every home he ever owned, was taken over by the task force. Mm, Yeah. Kicking families out who lived there to tear the place apart. Reichert talks about having to go to his first house that him and Judith moved into. Oh, the one after that. say, like, the first house that they lived in together. I mean, the one where he killed Marie Melbar. Oh, Military Road. Okay. And they had to tell them, like... Hi, if no one's ever informed you, the Green River Killer used to live in this. Because no one knew when they bought the house. Yeah. So they were like, you know, if you've made it this far in the news cycle and no one's told you, um, he used to live here, so now you have to leave. Yeah. And we have to tear this whole place apart. And he just remembers being, like, so sick at that point. Just like, I can't believe how many people this is ruining. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they never found anything. I think that is interesting about him. Like, I know they found jewelry at kenworth you know i like never, that's mentioned it's but like, like a, i don't know what jewelry a slight who? blip in the green river serial killer book that he did have items that he took and gave to other people but yeah like there were earrings he gave to judith's daughter but judith i don't know if he ever gave anything to judith no i don't she think mentions he mentions that yeah. her her um i think it was like her grandmother's jewelry I think they kept some jewelry that Gary said was from his grandmother and, oh. or like some, you yeah. know, relative yeah. and her, like they kept antique jewelry, like in a yeah. thing and yeah. some of it was gone as yeah. Yeah. part of the investigation. But she said she firmly knows that it was from her family mm. and she was like, yeah. cool, not getting that back. And this was all like, I feel like from Anne Rule's perspective, she makes it like almost as if it was an obsession to find his trophies because it's, it, you know, especially then it was common knowledge. That's what serial killers did. That was part of their MO. They kept something 
but he didn't need that. He had the body sights. Yeah. Like, that's what, you know, we find out later that that is what his trophies were, were the body sights. To yeah. go back and to know, because he says, he quotes from Anne Rule's book in his interrogation, he's saying, like, it was mine. Like, so, like, asking what, what how he felt when those body sites were discovered, he said that it, it hurt because it felt like someone was taking his, you know, something that was his, that he yeah. had hidden away. That like he it was felt an ownership. His. Yeah. And they, but anyway, back to what I was trying to say, they're trying to find anything because right now all they have are, is DNA on four victims. They have nothing else. Like if he doesn't fucking talk, Mm-hmm. That's a lot, a lot of circumstantial evidence to tie him yeah. to the remaining. Like, his lawyers could easily play that off as he saw an opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, during the midst of the Green River killings, he saw an opportunity to kill women also. You know, they could play it out that way, right. even though three of the victims that had DNA on them were the first ones found. Right. I think that that's but, truly like, what fucks him over. That that's Yes. Well, and I also yes. think, unfortunately... I mean, I don't know, unfortunately, but, you know, at this point in the investigation and getting a firm arrest from someone who is a habitual suspect and has not left the public eye Mm -hmm. or, you know, at least the police consciousness, I think he would have been convicted no matter what. Oh, yeah. Even if he was only guilty of a few of them. Probably. He would have written it out because there was no other option for them at that point. Yeah. So upon the arrest... Um, Reichert obviously had several interactions with family members saying like, oh my God, is this legitimate? Is this happening finally? Because there was so much unease and tension about letting the families know like, hey, we've told you for all these years that we think that your your daughter's murder or your missing child is involved in this investigation and now we think we have it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of mixed reaction. Um, Opal Mills is extended family was I mean like her brother was always upset about it and very Mm -hmm. mad but her mom commented that she was like well I guess it's time that I test myself and really dig into this religion like I claim to be a woman of God I better lean on him quick and see if I can find forgiveness Mm. like I didn't plan on being confronted with this yeah so now I guess this is a test of my faith uh so Tom Estes whose daughter was Debbie she was just 15 years old when Gary Ridgway killed her he was the complete opposite and was like, I'll do whatever I have to for you to put him to death. He hmm. said, um, the King County prosecutor, Norm Mailing, said there was no way that Ridgway would bargain his way out of the death penalty. At first, that was the stance. Like, yeah. kind of jumping oh, yeah. the gun. They yeah. were like, of course he's going to die. Fuck that. Yeah. Uh, they, he was just like, there is no price tag for this. I want to watch him die myself. So across... All of the victims' families. There's mixed reactions. It's very tense. Everyone's all of a sudden having to having to deal with something they kind of never thought would happen. And I'm sure that there was a lot of support needed to really look that in the face. When you yeah. probably deep down assume that you're going to die yourself without ever having an answer. And then you have to decide, is everything I've stood for and said in the last 20 years, is that real? Or like, what? how am I going to act now? Yep. So on December 5th, Gary Ridgway was formally charged with four counts of aggravated murder in the deaths of Marcia Chapman, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, and Carol Ann Christensen. 
So as all of this is coming out, obviously more people are talking, you know, more people who knew him, people at his off, his, at Kenworth are talking and no one, I mean, there are very few people who are like, I knew it, you know, like even though they joked about him being the Green River Killer, we've already discussed it. You wouldn't joke if you really thought that person did it like to their face. You wouldn't call them Green River Gary to their face if you really thought they did it. Um, and some of his uh, co-workers talk about how he, like, they remember a transformation at some point in time while he worked there. Like, he would be a Bible-quoting fanatic, like, that is in quotes from a worker who worked with him, to someone who made obscene sexual remarks. Like, he slowly transformed from this person who outwardly presented himself as like a bible thumper majorly a bible thumper Mm -hmm. into like this gross you know those gross men who make disgusting sexual references or jokes at any time they think is appropriate and it's never appropriate yeah i mean just like imagine you know everyone's had like a a low-wage job in high school where you have to serve people or like work in customer service and there's always someone who thinks they can talk about your chest and get away with it yeah he turns into that person, that person yeah. where people are uncomfortable by the remarks he's making but no one's mm-hmm. ever going to check him on it mm-hmm. and i think that just goes to show like that evolution of him transforming from someone who could control the facade and there were no cracks in the surface he goes to this person who is letting this person who is the murderer show through at work yeah he finally is reconciling between the two halves of himself, one that dispatches vengeance upon sex workers to the person who now has been doing it for so long that he is truly addicted to what he's doing, likes it, and can't stop. Yep. 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 I just can't imagine what would have happened if he had not been caught. I mean, he would have killed less people than he was in... 82 to 84 but he still would have killed people until he couldn't anymore i I mean he proved that yeah i wonder if he would have escalated further because it does seem like he was pretty i mean this is i don't know it's a bad way to frame this like scenario but it seems like he was happy with what he was doing like with his life outside of killing or with killing like he didn't need to escalate Right. He was already killing so many people. Oh, right, right. What else could he have possibly... I mean, I don't even want to say it, but, like, what what could he have done? I mean, yeah, no. What I, could he have done other than, like, a full-blown Ted Bundy... Like, rampage? Yeah. And I don't think he would... I don't, I mean, I don't know. Just, like, the... Per, like you've said, like we've said, he's so calm and emotionless. Like, I don't think he would ever get to a moment that Ted Bundy got to... To just going and fucking killing seven people in one night or whatever. You know, like, it was not in him to do that. Yeah. Like, I think he definitely would have, if he had a little extra cash, if he got mad, or if he was having a good day, whatever the fuck motivated him previously, he would have killed again. I would be very interested to see, like, psychological reports or hear a current professional's yeah, yeah. perspective on, like, what that would look like for him. Because he was already, I mean, he had obviously cut back drastically in the number of victims he was killing, but he was, he started burying them so that he wouldn't visit their bodies. Yeah. So he was already, like, trying to take a step away. Yeah, and as, I mean, as you find out in the timeline, he killed 
way fewer victims when he was with Judith. Yeah. He compares it to being, I mean, like so many other things, he says that he is a sex addict and addicted to murder, I guess. But he Gross. says to Judith in a letter from prison much later that just like people are addicted to gambling, he couldn't stop what he was doing and that he did so good for so long. He said he prayed to God that if he would just let him get away with it one more time, he'd never do it again. Oh, Jesus. And then he kept to it. And then he describes one of the murders that breaks the streak as him falling off the wagon. Yeah. He truly speaks yeah. about himself mm-hmm. like he's an addict. Mm. So at this point, checking in uh, with Judith from the perspective of Green River serial killer, she deservedly spends the next few weeks absolutely falling apart. She isn't eating and she's barely sleeping. She is uh, on the Olivia Pope diet. She says that when she starts to feel so sick with hunger that she could pass out, she just makes popcorn. Because it seems like that's the only thing that she can handle doing by herself. Oh, no. So she makes popcorn, refills her wine glass, and sits down for a while. She goes through phases of being determined to clean up the house, but realizing after she's been moving around for a few hours that she's just picking things up and putting them in different places Mm. and that she's making a bigger mess. So then she stops and sits down and starts drinking again. She watched a lot of, like, shitty Lifetime movies, but... I mean, she was yeah. like, I would just realize all of a sudden after four hours that I'd been staring at the TV and not moving. And she's like, I would have no idea what I'd been thinking about for four hours. Mm-mm. So this all culminates one night. Um, she is in and out of doctor's offices trying to get things for sleep and then things to get rid of the sleeping pill, like, you know, to take yeah. the edge off of sleeping yeah. pills. She's getting things for depression, for nerves. Yeah. She's on a lot of medications. She's <clears throat> drinking a lot. One night after uh, she's got friends checking in on her, a friend leaves and she turns around and she either like opens the wrong door or like the door to the stairs isn't closed all the way and she trips and falls down the stairs and smacks her head on the floor and like knocks herself out. Oh no. She lays at the bottom of the stairs for several minutes and then comes to and wakes up and has a moment of, oh God. Like I gotta stop. I could die behaving the way I am. Yeah. And that's not what I'm going to do at this point in my life. Mm. I'm not. That's one of the big moments where she says to herself, I'm worth more than my time with Gary Ridgway. There is good for you, Judith. Yes. She's like, I have got to pick myself up off the floor and start dealing with this shit. Oh, so on December 8th of 2003, the federal government agreed to contribute $500,000 towards paying for DNA tests on the remaining 45 victims that were believed to be attributed to the Green River Killer. And then mid-December-ish, I think, uh, the world got their first video footage of Gary Ridgway as television newscasters were present for his arraignment hearing, where he pleaded not guilty to the four aggravated murders. So then we head into 2002, and we're in early March. The task force expands and moves into a new office building. With forensic evidence advancing, they were able to retest the overalls taken from Gary's locker at Kenworth in 1987. The tiny particles of paint on those overalls match the same tiny particles of paint found on Wendy Cofield, Deborah Estes, and Deborah Bonner's remains. The task force was hopeful this would lead to three more deaths to be added to the charges. And by the end of March, on March 27th, Gary Ridgway was charged with an additional three counts of aggravated murder. So at this point, it's still... It has not been... Like, it is... A trial is still happening. Right. Uh, from everyone's knowledge, a trial 
is happening. There's fight over the venue. Um, everyone, reporters, public, everyone's getting antsy about when is this going to begin. But like, I mean, they don't, they have no idea what is going on behind the scenes right. and how much farther this has to go if they're going to take it to trial. So the public and press, everyone is getting antsy to find out more information about when this trial is going to begin. Later into June, it's looking as if the trial will take place in King County. And it's basically been verified that he only has to pay for one attorney, but he will have a total of eight attorneys, seven investigators, two clerks, and six paralegals on his team. And it was also announced at this time that a tentative start date for his trial would be July of 2004. His legal bills were through the fucking roof. (laughs) Yeah. So his defense team... After the announce of the trial date, you know, tentative trial date, contacts prosecutor Norm Maling, Maling. Maling and asked if he could avoid the death penalty if he pleaded guilty to the seven current counts and showed the task force where remaining undiscovered bodies are. So obviously this reaches a major point, a changing point in the story and... I mean, Gary Ridgway's fate as we know it today. Like, the prosecutor is very solid on, no, we want him fucking dead. Like, he deserves it. Of anyone in this world. Yeah. He fucking deserves it. But then on the other hand, a lengthy trial, who knows how long that could take? Who knows if Gary Ridgway would survive a lengthy trial? Who knows if they're going to get actual evidence to tie him to the remaining victims that they have attributed to the Green River? And at that moment, is it fair to those families to have to sit through this lengthy trial to maybe never get answers, to maybe him walk away with only being found guilty of seven women when they think he killed 49, 48 at this moment. But so on June 13th of 2003, the prosecutor's office and the defense team entered into an agreement. And this is quoted from Ann Rule's book. The state would not seek the death penalty, but Ridgway would have to plead guilty to aggravated murder in the first degree for all of the homicides he'd committed in King County. And this didn't mean only the 49 victims on the official list. If he had killed before 1982 or after 1985, he had to admit those murders as well. And it is key to note that this only pertained to King County, which is in the state of Washington. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. Did not mean Oregon. Did not mean California. Anywhere else, Gary Ridgway, outside of King County, could have possibly given killing women. It did not count for that. Because they. it was very clear that if later in time they found that he was guilty, like if they found DNA evidence on women who were found in King County then he would be charged and given the death penalty. The death penalty would be sought after, at least. Which, great. (laughs) Yeah. Hi, listeners. Today's episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. We love talking about true crime and unsolved mysteries and everything spooky, but even we need a break. 
When we feel like we might need a mental palate cleanser, our go-to refresher is the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends. It is a really fun puzzle game that you can play on your phone. It has tons of levels where you can solve challenging puzzles that engage your brain, but anyone can play. It's very casual. And it's like challenging in a fun way, not like you forgot to do your homework or you have to write a paper that's due at six o'clock when your friend comes over and you're not done yet. Yes. Oops, is that me? (laughs) Oops. I love playing when I need a break from writing and I just made it past level 450. The greatest part for me is that it doesn't take up a whole bunch of my time, but it fills up moments when I wish I had something to do aside from browsing Facebook Marketplace yet again. I actually like to play while I wait for my nails to dry. It's the perfect activity to keep me occupied when I have to sit still. You also don't need internet to play. So it's amazing for when you don't have connection on the subway or when your battery is almost dead and you're on airplane mode. The game is also visually stimulating with bright colors and cute characters. And Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events, so it never gets old. Download today and engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, best fiends. Defeat the slugs. Get it. So, again, checking back in with Judith. She's been questioned over and over again. She describes being very, very tired from hearing knocks on her door and getting calls from detectives and having to sit at her kitchen table and talk to them again and again while they badger her relentlessly about whether or not she knew about any of this. Because obviously, she's almost treated as an accessory for a while. They have to assume, like, you lived with him for 14 years. Mm -hmm. You had to have known something. Or at least that she's willing to put together the pieces of, like, okay, he lied to me. So if he lied to me about this, maybe I can, you know, maybe she then can give more information about something else. And she just talks about how horrific it was for her to have to hear over and over again for her to, in a very vulgar manner, be told, your husband stopped and paid sex workers and then he murdered them. Did you know anything about this? Or like, on this date, your husband did not go to work early like you thought. He actually stopped on the side of Highway 99 and strangled a sex worker to death. Being questioned individually about all of these events, as they start to get more information and they're putting together a solid case of 40-plus murders, she is questioned about every single one. So she's still in a headspace where she Mm. is on a lot of drugs and is being prescribed a lot of stuff to try to help her sleep. And she wants to start putting the house back together. Again, she's just still in the exact same place, battling back and forth between like manic productivity and trying to fix it, being mad at Gary, and finally starting to come to terms with him being a fucking monster. And in the midst of it, she's finally started to open up to people. She's visiting him in prison at this point. Judith is accompanying Gary's brothers to see him. And she tells him that she's scared about paying bills and that she isn't equipped to deal with this, especially right now. So he, I mean, just like her knight in shining armor time and time again, he has a solution. He says, bring me all of the paperwork for my retirement fund, for the IRA, everything we were going to use to travel, and I'll sign off on it. And if it comes down to it, you can sell the house. So she does that. She finds everything she needs, brings it to him, 
cashes out $22,000 of the IRA and uses it to catch up on things. She buys herself a car because all of their cars were taken and their RV itself. Mm-hmm. She has nothing. So she buys herself like a piece of shit, starts to try to get ahead and just realizes it isn't going to happen. She can't support herself and all of his legal thieves. So they move to selling the house, which takes forever. They finally get people who are moving there from out of state who aren't as well versed in the case and say, mm, that's fine. <laughs> we don't care. Which, can you imagine? No. I mean, hopefully at this point she's used the money to have the fucking carpet replaced and there's not holes missing everywhere from where they took swatches. Yeah. I, I just can't imagine. Also, I'm not sure he killed anyone there. Because no, that is no, he didn't. the house he shared with Judith, so... He didn't, but... But yeah, I know, I know, like... Oh my god. Still. You can't... Even if you weren't aware, you have to read one headline accused of 48 murders and be right. like, no fucking thank you. Yeah. But they decided they didn't care. So they buy the house. Yeah. Um, and I think the grand split was like, Gary was entitled to $80,000 and he was allowed to take that money because it wasn't anything to do with murder. Mm-hmm. It was an asset that he already had his name on. So she got like a little more than that. She got like $110,000 or something. His dick face, older brother Greg, asks her for the money from the sale of the house to put it up for his defense. He assumes mm-hmm. this. Fuck He's off. like, when can I hear from you about how I'm getting that money so we can apply it to the defense? LOL. And she lost her damn mind. When I was reading this, I was just like, good for you. Scream at him. Yeah. She yeah. was just like, how am I supposed to take care of myself? Right. I'm going to be homeless soon. Yeah. I am homeless. Like, I'm he sleeping. was the income in this house. Yeah. She already, she said, I'm sleeping at someone else's house in a guest room. Like, Effectively, no, I am no. homeless. What am I supposed to do? No, 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 no. And he's like, that's too bad. Mm, we need to present no, to no, you. No, no, he no. just seems like a super fuck. He seems like, what's his name from Step Brothers? Oh. The cunt brother that yeah. gets kicked out of the treehouse. Yeah. He seems like him. Derek. Okay, okay. He's like, you're kidding me. We're not, like, we're spending all this money on the defense. It's too bad. And she was like, no, go fuck yourself. Yeah, literally go fuck yourself. Then. I have nothing to do with this. When she snapped on him, they had the locks changed. She didn't have a mailbox, and she had to get correspondence from all of this legal shit. And she's trying to sell a house. She's emptying out IRAs. She needs somewhere to have her mail sent. They lock her out of their house and don't talk to her anymore. I think there was, like, one final time where they said, you can come get your mail again. And then Greg's bitch wife, Doreen, which, like, that's mean of me. I should not. That's a lot for Doreen to deal with. She never signed up for this. (laughs) But have some compassion, Doreen. Yeah. She tells her, if we keep speaking to you, me and Greg are going to be on a fast track to divorce. So, bye. Oh, my God. I can't imagine. Because this is her family. Well, and like, what she do you mean? Have a family. We're on the fast track to divorce if we keep talking to you. You're like, you're I st- didn't do anything. You're still talking to your brother. Who killed 49 people. You're staunchly defending him at every turn, Ugh. saying that this is all a huge mistake. Going Ugh. in front of the media and saying, yeah. no, he's innocent. Ew. Which, yes, that's what you're supposed to do. Ew. But not when they did it. No. Not when they are guilty. It would be <laughs> more fun. prudent to just stay quiet. So, in the midst of all of that, like I was discussing before, people were getting anxious about what was going on. Where was Gary Ridgway? Reporters couldn't find him. He wasn't at the jail. He wasn't at the hospital. Where the fuck was he? 
Then they find out that a deal has been made, that he's not going to get the death penalty. And then it's discovered Gary Ridgway is sleeping where the task force operates on the daily. I just imagine. He's literally <laughs> spending every second with they them. They just have him in a cage, like a big parrot like a, cage. Like a dog cage. That's what I'm picturing. Like <laughs> a, a kennel, kennel on the floor. A kennel with a mattress in it. That's probably what it was. Yeah. I was imagining a big, like, round top. Oh, okay. <laughs> like a go-go dancer <laughs> cage. Yes. But it's very, it's very narrow. He can't yes. lay down. Yes. He, he just stands down. there. And then he lifts his heel up and does a full Oh, split. God. No, 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 no. I don't want that in my head. <laughs> yeah. So, essentially, he's just, like, chilling, chilling with the task force. And it's because he has agreed to tell them where bodies are. Bodies they may have not discovered. Or even known about. Or known at about. All. At all. So he starts going on field trips with them. It's, and this is not discovered till later, like well after the fact. He was never let out of the police car. He was never let out of handcuffs. And he was like basically parked on the edge of whatever site he took them to and he had to give descriptions or he would show on a map exactly where he put someone and they would go and they would search so victim number 46 pammy annette avent she was found during one of the searches that ridgeway led the task force to they uncovered countless of bones in the area mostly animal but on august 16th of 2003 a bone was handed over to kevin o'keefe who was becoming a master at identifying whether a bone was human or not. And this one was. This was literally just like a detective, a detective that they would like throw a bone to. And he'd be like, animal, animal. And then like they'd throw and he's like, careful, this one's human. Like he just like got a knack for knowing which ones were human and which ones were not. I think I just found my calling. <laughs> I just it. got really just excited. Get bones thrown at you. <laughs> Basically, I want to be a cadaver dog. <laughs> I mean, I think the term is essentially when it's a human, it's a forensic anthropologist (laughs) or you could be a cadaver dog. (laughs) So they were discovered in the woods near Unumclaw and they would be identified to be Pammy Avent. She was close friends with Kelly K. McGinnis, someone we haven't talked about yet. And she remains missing to this day. Kelly and Pammy, who were 18 and 15 respectively, both worked areas in Portland and Seattle Kelly was last seen around 7.30 p.m. on June 28th of 1983 near the Pacific Highway and South 216th Street. She was reported missing by her boyfriend the following day. Pammy was last seen on October 26, 1983 near Rainier Valley in Oregon. And that's all the information we have about her. So victim number 47 who was found just a few days later on August 21st, 2003... This was another revisit to old sites that had been cleared long ago. God. They discovered 19 human bones. She was still, she still is unidentified today. Scientists believe she was dumped anywhere between 10 and 30 years prior to her being found. And if she had been dumped 30 years, that could open up more potential victims because it would take us into the 70s. She is believed to be between 16 to 26 years old. Most likely white, but possibly of mixed race, and she had shoulder-length light brown hair. She's being identified right now as Jane Doe B20. 
So this is a big one if it's discovered that she was found in the 70s because he does not say that he did anything in the 70s. Yeah. I mean, I think it's totally plausible that he did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So then moving right along into August 30th, we find victim number 48, April or April Dawn Butram. She was 16 when she moved to Seattle from Spokane. She hopped a ride with two of her friends who were also ready to make it in the big city. Her family felt her behavior changed in an instant. Whereas some kids develop, develop into disobedience, April's appeared to happen in a moment. In quick succession, she dropped out of school, started doing drugs, and only seemed to care about where the next party was. At the age of 16, she was ready to grow up. She only had to make it for two years, like make it on the street, essentially. Because when she turned 18, she would get $10,000 from a trust fund that a relative had set up for her. One of the last arguments April and her mother had was when she caught her, when her mom caught her climbing out the window of her bedroom with a suitcase. And her mom told her, at least have the guts to go out the front door. And in Anne Roll's book, her mom is quoted as saying, and she did, and she never came back. That's awful. So once April and her friends made it to Seattle, they split up. So it's unclear when the last time April was seen alive. Police believe it was in Rainier Valley around the middle of August of 1983, but she wasn't reported missing until March 24th of 1984. April, April's remains were discovered in September, not September... Nope. April's remains were discovered on August 30th, 2003. And she was found in Snoqualmie. 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 Near I-90, another body site that had been searched before. She was identified on September 16th, just a few short weeks later, by the King County Medical Examiner. So next, technically in our timeline, but we have already talked about her, September 26th, 2003, Marie Malvar was discovered 20 years after she had gone missing and 20 years after her family had led police to Gary Ridgeway's home, where they were positive the same truck in the driveway was the one that Marie was last spotted in. So, as we know, Gary has been helping the police find remaining bodies, part of his plea deal. Some other tidbits we kind of find out throughout the interviews and confessions that were later released include that he began beheading his victims later on to mess up the investigation, leaving their heads in Oregon or elsewhere away from their bodies. That's why a number of victims only their skulls were found. Or in one of the cases we talk about um, a victim's skull being found in 2005 or, like, her lower jaw being found. Like, oh, not near where her, the rest of her remains were found. Uh, he really evolved. Like, yeah. he, for being so, like, everyone talks about his IQ and how he supposedly didn't have a very high IQ. He re- he was so observant of, like, yeah. okay, people are starting to catch on, or this site was investigated, so now I need to do something different. I mean, oh, yeah. it didn't stop anyone yeah. from realizing. Like, no. I think at this point, they're like, okay, it's the same person. Yeah. It's not going to yeah. be a different murderer at right. this point. But he was so good at thinking about what he could change. Yes. Which is... Which is, like, those bodies that start being found in Oregon. It Like, that's why he started putting them there, because he was... All of his spots were being found in <sighs> Seattle. So then he moves on to Oregon. 
I mean, we obviously know that he didn't care about his victims, but in throughout his interviews, he truly cannot recall what they looked like. He didn't have a preference, size, shape, skin color, hair color, did not matter at all. Obviously, no, he no. killed a number of black women, a number of white women, all of varying. I mean, most of them were younger, but some of them were older. So he like he really didn't care. And like he could not. He was shown pictures of women and it would be like, I, he didn't know. He could tell you where he put bodies, and that's how detectives found out, you know, found out whether that was the victim he had killed by their remains. Yeah. I think he, he definitely, like, a detail of, like, a facial, you know, any facial details or what they looked like, or even their names in some instances didn't stick with him. And I think it was because he was so consumed with the act itself that he couldn't think about. Like, it's like... His brain was so taken up with, with what he it. was about to be mm-hmm. rewarded with that mm-hmm. he didn't have room to commit those things to memory. Yeah. Throughout the beginning of his interviews and confessions, he kind of starts off, um, especially when he's only being charged with the four, it's like he got mad. Whatever happened, he got mad at them, whether they said that, you know, he wasn't finishing fast enough, so they were done. Whatever they did to piss him off, he got mad and in a rage killed them. Which, obviously, the detectives knew that wasn't true, because you don't do that 49 times. Like, you're I mean, doing it because you You could have done like that it once. And you want to do it. You did yeah. that once. Yeah, yeah. But then the rest of the time, no. Especially when you're killing some of the women were said not to be sex workers. Yeah. So you were never going to be in a position like that with them. Yeah. He also didn't kill every sex worker he came in contact with. We kind of talk about this because obviously if he was having sex that many times a day with that many different women, he wasn't killing all of them. But he did this, like you said, like him kind of catching on and getting smarter. He did this so that he would have witnesses Witnesses who worked with other sex workers who were like, oh, no, I've had him before. He's fine, you know? Yeah. He wouldn't hurt them. He wouldn't make them do anything they didn't want to do. Like, he was very cordial to some so that he had witnesses to say that he did not ever hurt them or scare them. I think it's interesting to point this out now since we're talking about it in terms of his murder patterns. But he did the same thing in his personal life. Mm. If he noticed that someone at work didn't receive a joke well, he was smart enough and aware Mm. enough to say, oh, I shouldn't act like that anymore. Or that was one step too far. And he said with Judith, they had such a good relationship because he looked at what he did with his first two wives and analyzed why didn't those relationships work? Oh, wow. They both said that he was too bossy. So with Judith, he said he tried to do 90% of what she wanted to do. He just tried to go with whatever she wanted and how could he, I mean, I think he was able to act differently because they didn't, those first two wives challenged him in ways that Judith never would have. Mm-hmm. She was a better fit for him. Yeah, yeah. But I think he was, at that point, he had so much riding on his behavior and keeping her happy and unaware that it was like, it's going to be blissfully yes. unaware. Yes. That I'm just going to code switch and change myself and be a different person that would never be a murderer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's so gross. Very. Every aspect Very. of his life was just, he's two different people. Yeah. He would also keep toys in his car, like his son's toys, to alleviate any stress. Like, especially during the midst of all of the murders happening, he would keep toys in his car to, like, he felt like that would make women fear him less. 
like not think that he's the Green River Killer. Of course. So when he lived alone, he would regularly take sex workers there and he would instruct them to clean themselves, specifically their vaginas before intercourse, because once he had killed a number of women, he realized what happens when someone dies, like what happens to their bowels. And it was less to clean up if they had done that. Like, it wasn't so much that he wanted them to be clean before he had sex with them. It was more like he wanted them to use the restroom and then clean themselves so that he wouldn't have a mess to clean up after he killed them. Yeah. That's a specific level of disgusting. Yeah. I yeah. just don't. Yeah, he w- yeah, it I mean everything he did was disgusting. But yeah, so he killed women in his house and he would always put them on plastic or a green carpet, which I think there were carpet fibers found on some bodies, and he would roll them up in that and put them in his truck and then he would dump their bodies. So when he lived alone, he was killing them in his house. In his bed. Primarily. Yeah, in his bed. Yeah. Probably the one that has all the wallpaper. I don't know if that was that house, but all the wood wall, the woods. It's the military. Wallpaper. Yeah, it's okay, the military yeah, then it's that house. house. Yeah, yeah it's that it's house. The same bed that he got rid of mm-hmm. as soon as mm-hmm. Judith decided mm-hmm. she was going to move in. Yup, yup. Um, he recalled. So some of this does get like a lot. It's very detailed and gross. That's kind of why that's we're going why over you guys it. Are here. Um, we're going yeah. over it in a way that's like a brief overview, a collection. Yeah, of so it's not like. So it's not so detailed and graphic and heavy consistently. Yeah. And because there's no there's no way for us to convey this information anyway other than like a thought roundup. Yeah. Other than you just reading the book for yourself. Because yes. it's Exactly. You know, I don't yeah, we don't want to spoon feed all yeah. of that. Yeah. We want you to go read it if and you want. And it's interesting between the three books to see because Penny Moorhead has her own interview with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Which I will read some direct passages from that because that interview is centered around Judith and not the murders. So it's interesting to see and hear that perspective directly from him. And it's not, it's just not worth giving him the time to talk about no. what he did in his exact own words. No one no, cares. No, no, fuck off. No. He doesn't get that. Yeah, so everything I'm reading right now is from Green River Running Red. And it is in an interview format because Anne Roll had access to the thousands of hours of tapes that were available after he was convicted. So he learned that he preferred to have sex from behind because this enabled him to strangle them. That's how he killed them. He said he's quoted in his interview saying he never used a knife or a gun. It would be messy. Although we do have a survivor who claims... Yeah. You know, that he did stab her, which maybe that was, it, that was early on. That was in 82. Like, maybe he experimented with that and then realized, no. Mm-hmm. Or he could have stabbed victims who were outside, you know? Like, yeah. yeah, he wouldn't do that in his house because it would be messy. But he might have done that elsewhere. Oh, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Um, he, I think we've mentioned this before, too, um... They would fight, obviously, anyone would, who was being strangled. But that's why he moves on to ligatures, because then he's farther away from them. Because a number of women would leave marks on him because he they were fighting, they were struggling with him. And so he started using ligatures so that he was farther away and wouldn't have marks. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, so when asked, this is a direct quote in Green River Running Red, why he choked them. He's quoted saying, because that was more personal and more rewarding than to shoot her. 
There are little tidbits like that that we threw in here just to remind you as we're talking about him as a human being who does have moments of, uh, I'm not going to say remorse, but recognition. Yep. yep. He's a piece of fucking shit. Yeah. As much as he can have moments where he says, I do regret what I did. And if I could he do it over, I disgusting. would get help. No. 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 He Don't can't do that. No. He is who he is. Nope. So in his interviews, discussion is led to... You know, not just knowing from his previous wives how much he wanted to have sex, knowing he had consensual sex with a number of women, and then, like, asking, like, why did you go to sex workers then? Like, you know, if you had women at home, like, why why were you doing that? Why not just masturbate if you needed that much sex? Because it turned into the point of him, you know, admitting that he, like, wouldn't want to go out on the strip because he knew what it would lead to essentially, oh, was yeah. killing someone. And then it was like, okay, why didn't you just stay home then? And he said, no, no. Masturbation is a much worse sin than pain for sex. Which, but apparently, like, also worse than murder in his eyes. Like, you'd rather go pay for sex and then kill someone than just stay at home and masturbate. Okay. I don't understand <laughs> that in the slightest. Penny Moore had asked okay. him, too, like, why did you keep doing this? What could you yeah. have done to get you to stop? And he, she says, did you ever take different routes? Like what? And he was like, yeah, for a while I stopped doing that. But he says a bunch of mundane shit. Like one time his truck broke down, like when he was driving a different way and like he didn't like to be inconvenienced. And that was the most direct route to most of the places he had to go. Yeah. And so it was just like, he was such a creature of habit that he couldn't be bothered or it was too much work for him to avoid where he knew sex workers would be and then was helpless. Yeah. To stop himself. Of course. Because he references constantly of this course. urge and he compares it to gambling or alcoholism, oh. which I believe. Yeah. But, I do believe But that. it's different because it's murder. Well, right. <laughs> you're not destroying yourself. With yeah. Those. You're literally taking another life. Um, at one point during his interview process, this, this was very interesting and very telling how Anne Rule explains it is... He switches over to the other Gary. So all of these really horrifying and gross tidbits we get is from the other Gary. And he's mean and he's tough and he's like, he's the one who did it, not, you know. Like he's, he talks about the new Gary who's being interviewed by the police saying that he's soft. He can't handle what, what I did. Like he's, you know, using phrases like that. And Anne Rule describes it as bad acting by someone who's watched too many movies about people who have split personalities and things like that. Well, and hi, welcome yeah. to every serial killer ever who says they Literally were a different person ever. when they were committing the murders. Ever. I mean, didn't Ted Bundy do that? Oh, yeah. He talks about being unable to yes. control himself and yes. other people have said this. Like, Absolutely. Can you hear my eyes rolling and just like the whites of my eyes sticking out right now? Yep. I just can't. Yep. Here. Oh, my gosh. Ugh. What's happened? I hate him. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah. Okay, so in addition, like, with that, the old Gary, like, obviously the detectives were not falling for it. They played along, though, because they didn't mind the old Gary because he wanted to talk and tell them the awful things he did versus the new Gary didn't. So they, like, stuck with it. They were like, oh, yes, tell me, old Gary. Tell me how tough you are. Tell me, you know, like, they're, like, playing into it because they're like, we're not get, we're not getting anything from the other one. So if he wants to play old Gary and tell us what he did, then by all means, I know it's keep wrong, talking. But I really want Sheriff Reichert at one point just to reach out at the end of a session and backhand the fuck out of him. 
Yeah. Just like Moira Rosen Schiskert, sign the fucking contract. <laughs> I want someone to do that to him. Oh my like, gosh. Yeah. I know. We all know. We all know that you're a dumb yeah. little piece of shit and you're lying. Yeah. So at this point, while Gary is being interviewed, he is for sure in custody and he's being charged. Judith's world has come apart. But at this point, we're further into the process. She's had some time to think about everything. She spends a lot of time drinking. She eventually sells the house. Um, She is almost homeless for a while and then ends up moving in with a very elderly woman from a church that she started going to. And then after that, her parents actually call her and ask her to move back in because they're older at this point and they're having, um, I think her stepfather was being treated for an illness, maybe cancer, and they, he couldn't drive and her mother couldn't either. And she finally could drive. Like later in life, she got her license and she remembers being, Yeah, she's like, it felt serendipitous to be called by my parents and be like, can you come back in and help us and like drive now Mm -hmm. that like they saw her as a burden and as helpless for so long that now she was like, all right, bitches. Yeah. (laughs) I'm coming back in your house. And they gave up the master bedroom as a sign of their appreciation for her moving in and helping them. That's very nice. I would have said no and felt very weird about it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean. But, um, she does, there is an interview with the two friends, Jim and Linda Bailey, in uh, Penny Moorhead's book, Green River Serial Killer. And Linda talks about being the person who came to Judith's side and supported her through all of this. And at times she said it was just unbearable to watch someone, to look at someone, she used the phrase naked anguish. She was like, to look at someone and truly see there's no mask, nothing is being held back. Yeah. You're just seeing everything that that person's feeling written on their face and how they're expressing yes. it is just, just the most open. Yeah. And she tells her during one of these moments where she comes over to her house when she was like, I think I'm ready to have you help me clean. Um, she tells her during one of those sessions where she's helping her prepare to sell the house and they're, you know, she's making strides with Judith and she's actually talking about things. She says, that awful man, the one that killed all those poor girls, he was my hero. He was everything to me. Mm. And then she admits that the second or third day after she was back in the house and trying to clean things up, but she was drunk all the time, she found a huge stash of condoms in the garage and lost her mind and picked up an axe and just started smashing the fuck out of everything in the garage She said she just blindly swung the axe into anything she could reach until she was so exhausted that she dropped down the floor and fell over. Get it, girl. And I was just like, where is Judith's movie? Yes, please. (laughs) Oh my God, that would be such a good scene. Let her have this. That would be a really good scene. But I think that that's also the same weekend that she was so drunk that she fell down the stairs and almost like got a concussion and almost severely hurt herself. Yeah. So at this point, Gary's writing to her. Uh, She doesn't open the letters for a while, Mm -hmm. but eventually one day she feels like, I'll see what he has to say. And she opens one and it puts her back, you know, one step forward, eight steps back, essentially. Yeah. And then she does get to a point finally, and she's writing him back for a while and it's kind of cordial. This is when they decide they have to get divorced and past that, he writes to her for a long time and she opens them, but then she stops replying. He talks to her about what he's going through in jail and how the investigation's going. And you have to assume that people are reading these at this point, too. 
So a lot of it is he's sending her Bible verses and things like inspirational things for her to read. It's very gross that it's like, you think that would help in my hour of need? Yeah. You of all people are going to send me a Bible verse that you think will make me feel better. Yeah. I think not. And you have to walk away because it is someone you loved and cared about. And you cared about that person. They were that person. They were also this other person who was a monster though. So you did love and care about them. So you do have to, she would have to just completely cut off. Like you can't, because you would, like part of you would feel awful that they're going through what they're going through, you know? Yeah. In her position. She just goes on and on about how hard it is for her to reconcile everything. And that like yeah. she finally realizes that a big turning point for her in, thinking, like, I can't continue to communicate with him, is that she, like, changes her phone number, she sells her house, she moves. Yes. Nobody should be yes. able to find her at this point. And she yes. comes home one day to flowers on her doorstep. And she said she'll never forget how sick she felt. Oh. Like, no one should know where to send me anything. And it was from a reporter that said, when you're ready to talk, like, I'm here for you. Oh. And she just said it made her feel like she was going to vomit. Uh, Yeah. So back into kind of Gary Ridgway and what we learn while he's being interviewed. I do have some quotes from the book. I don't think I'm going to read all of these. Um, but they just uh, go into more detail of what he did. And it's his own words confessing to it, basically. Um, one of the quotes while he's being the old Gary is women always had control of me. They used me. I did cry after sometimes, but that was the good part of me. I'm the old Gary now. And at one point in the interview, he does admit to returning to the bodies about 10 of the women. He says who he had left close to the strip. And he's quoted saying that would be a good day an evening when I got off work and go have sex with her. And that'd last for one or two days till I couldn't, till the flies came. And I'd bury them and cover them up. And then I'd look for another. Sometimes I killed one one day and I killed one the next. And there wouldn't be no reason to go back. So that's like his reasoning, which is something we don't get a lot of, of him literally admitting to necrophilia is that he would go back to them. He'd obviously saw it as defiling he didn't have to pay them anymore not that he paid them to begin with because he took the money back but he's he basically claims that he sometimes he would kill so frequently so that he wouldn't go back to their dead bodies so instead of going back to a dead body he would find another girl the next day and kill her so that he wouldn't have to go back to the dead body and as we've talked about he starts burying them to prevent himself from doing that which is just no He's disgusting. No. So another quote from his interview, uh, talking about like how he felt, like being asked how you felt when your body sites were uncovered, because that was big news. Obviously, you were following it, and there would be a number of women found. He was quoted saying, a beautiful person that was my property, my possession, something only I knew, and I missed when they were found or lost to me. So he like talks about feeling deep sadness because it was his that someone found. It wasn't like sadness for this family finding out the fate of their daughter. You know, it was sadness for himself that something that was his, that he hid away, they found. Yeah. And he could never go back to it. 
That's just everything you know about the mindset of ownership and control. Yeah. Had to have control. Yes. So later into 2003, after these, the four women we just talked about were found with the help of Gary Ridgway, the information about his whereabouts is finally released. Um, We kind of mentioned earlier in the episode that everyone's kind of freaking out. Where the fuck is he? Why isn't, you know, a trial happening? What's going on? And then it's discovered that he has literally been living in the same room with the Green River Task Force. He has, like, a bed there and has been sleeping there. He's been eating there. He's been being interviewed. You know, everything. Like, he has... Sue Peters talks a lot in Anne Rule's book, who was one of the investigators at the time. Um, and she's literally... Like, he was essentially... Like, it got to the point that he was a co-worker. Like, he got to know them. He would literally... Like, not because they wanted him to. Because yeah. he was just there. Like, he would say, Good morning! Good morning, Sue. How's your coffee? You know, like stuff like that that a coworker would say. Like he loved it. He reveled in it. Like being in this position, he felt obviously very powerful because they had to be nice to him. I don't think he understood that. I don't think he understood like that they were actually in power. You know what I mean? Yeah. And at moments she talks about like they were. They treated him like a human being. You know, they would ask what he'd want for breakfast. But then he got like really smug about it and so they just then he from then on just kind of got whatever they decided he would get because it turned into like okay you're enjoying this too much yeah so we got to take something away well it's like you don't get to have pancakes when you want pancakes (laughs) well then he got to claim ownership of something else yes the relationship and the you know yes the the equality that he felt like he was getting from people in power which is what he wanted to be yeah but then just he was so close to the community too. Like it wasn't where they kept him, like near the airport too. It was yeah near everyone yeah, and everything, everything that he did. Yes, yes. It's just so he would never get to get out of the car. He would tell them, like he would get to see maps and t- like drive with them to sites and help them out if there. It was like what air, you know, left, right, center. Like where are we going? But he never got to leave the vehicle. He was in the car the whole time, handcuffed. Like, but no, I mean, it's so crazy because it's like, if anyone was really following, he's in the fucking police car. But I guess people were like, that wouldn't happen. You know, he's got to be locked up somewhere. There's a picture of him in, he just looks like a startled raccoon in every picture of him. There's one of him in the back of a car wearing like a windbreaker and a hat. Like he, he just looks like he's an ugly dad on his way to go golfing. And then yeah. you like read the caption and you're just like, throw him on the ground. So then we move on to December 16th, 2003. From Green River Running Red, Detective, well, Sheriff at this moment, uh, Reichart, Dave Reichart, visits Gary Ridgway. It's not the first time he interrogated him, though. Um, In Anne Rule's book, she kind of talks about how, like, the relationship that she perceived that Gary and Ridgway had from her, like, listening. Oh, Gary and Ridgway. Gary, Ridgway and Reichart had (laughs) from her listening to the interviews was, like, Ridgway was way more comfortable talking to anyone else. Mm -hmm. Like, he understood that Dave Reichart was the top dog and the one to be afraid of. Like, everyone else might give him what he wants because he's there to help. Dave Reichardt was not that person. So he didn't interview him a lot. He did, I think, interrogate him, obviously. But, like, for the most part, he was being questioned on the daily by other detectives. But on December 16th, the following conversation happened. Reichardt says, why did you kill them? And Gary responds, I had a craving 
because they were sex workers. I wanted to kill them, wanted to control them. And Reichardt kind of or says, you can control people without killing them. So this kind of goes back and forth for some time. He's trying to get a real answer out of Ridgeway as to why he killed these women. He's really fishing for more, though. He believed, like everyone, that Ridgeway killed a lot more than 49 people. But with him having already pleaded, pleaded guilty, the death penalty was off the table. In a sentencing hearing in two days, he knew they probably wouldn't get any more information from him. Reichardt attempted to bait Ridgeway in with how good he had it now, you know, living with the task force, getting breakfast, getting to go on field trips, like baiting him into this saying, I could make this go on for six more months. Well, yeah. If you help us out. I'm surprised like, that that didn't work out more. I know. Or it just means that he was at the end of his list and he was a fucking liar. That he didn't kill any more women. Which I don't, I think that it's highly likely that he did. And he just doesn't remember. I think he thought more people would be more, like, interested in him. Yeah. So I think Ridgeway thought, I don't need to do this anymore because I'm going to go to jail and people are going to want to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Magazines. Newspapers. Other departments in other states are going to come and talk to me like they did with Ted Bundy. Right. Like, so I think he really put himself on this pedestal of, well, I don't need Dave Reichardt's team anymore, even if I've killed more people here. I don't need them anymore because someone else is going to come looking for me and want to do the same thing. And that doesn't happen. (laughs) So. Which is so funny. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad it didn't because he didn't deserve it. But also, I am curious what else we're going to hear from him. I know. Like, will we ever hear... Will we hear a deathbed confession of I don't more think people? We, I think it would be, like, remains are found and he's yeah. questioned and has to admit it. Yeah. I don't think he would volunteer any information. Yeah. So, directly from Anne Rule's book, she has, like, from the interview, quoting the interview, Reichardt saying, then you're on your way, uh, he says in disgust. I hope you, Ridgeway, for your sake, you've told us everything you know. Well, this is it. I can't say it's been a pleasure, because it hasn't. I don't like you. I don't like what you did. No one does. You don't even like yourself. This will end the interview process. So he kind of gives him one last chance to, like, continue this on. And then he's like, okay, fuck off. So on December 18th, 2003, is Gary Ridgway's sentencing hearing. Prior to the judge giving out Gary Ridgway's sentence, each family member who wished to speak was allowed 10 minutes to confront the man who murdered their daughter, sister, mother, friend. Which is not enough fucking time. I understand why a time limit is given. If just one person talked for every victim, it would take over eight hours. Yeah. After reading each individual charge, Prosecutor Sean O'Donnell and Ian Goodhue took turns doing this before announcing the defendant has pled guilty and agreed to a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of early release or parole. O'Donnell and Goodhue repeated this phrase 48 times after naming each victim. It was noted also that his sentences would run consecutively, not concurrently, and he would also be charged $50,000 for each charge. But, I mean, that doesn't matter because he doesn't have any fucking money. Right. So on December 18th, 2006, the author Penny Moorhead was granted a phone interview with Gary Ridgway. And, I mean, I think she was able to talk to him because they only talked about Judith. If she asked him anything else, it didn't make it into the book. Mm. So they, for a while, talk about 
their life together and then they get to the arrest and the shock of how this tragedy affected Judith. It is very frustrating to read if you take it upon yourself to do it because she writes everything verbatim and he has the public speaking skills of it's bad. a nervous nine-year-old. It's really bad. So she asks him, do you think being in a relationship with Judith would sort of help your sexual urges and perhaps not need to date sex workers as often? And he says, there's no programs out there for people that go out there to have a sexual problem like that. It's the same thing as gambling. You gamble and you can't control the urge. To a point there, I could control it, but then I dropped back into it like alcohol. It controlled me. That's why I wanted to retire as early as I could with Judith. He thought that if they could leave their jobs and sell their house and they were on the road constantly, he would be around her so often that he would never have the opportunity to leave her and go do it again. Um, they talk about the STDs that he had. And she asks, like, weren't you concerned about protecting your wife? And what yeah. he was like, well, he says very disgustingly to me for some reason. He says, well, I used a rubber when I could. And I just like put my phone down and was like, never say that to me again. Mm. <laughs> Sickening. He says that he <laughs> tried to, but apparently sometimes he didn't. Mm. So... He was vigilant about washing his own genitals. Sometimes even he tells Penny Moorhead in alcohol. He no. would pour alcohol over no. his crotch no. to, quote, kill the bugs in case there were any. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Sickening. That's like the most uncomfortable thing. <laughs> well, like, I hate that. I can't imagine unless that. you have an open wound, it stings that bad. But like, ew. No. Not ew. what you do. No. Um, she asks him, in your 14-year marriage, was there ever a time when you wanted to hurt Judith or kill her? And he quickly says no. He says she was the best he could have done and there was nothing he ever wanted to do to hurt her at all. Which I totally, I 100% believe that. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I think that he knew how good he had it with her and that he did love her. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. She, d- she also says she makes the statement several times that she feels like she did a public service by being with him. She didn't know it at the time because, of course, she had no idea what he was doing behind her back. But she says, I wish I could have stopped all Mm -hmm. of it. I Mm -hmm. wish I could have been enough to curb it completely. But think about how many women were saved because he was occupied with me. Even if women died during our marriage. Not close to the number that he was killing prior to being married. I think that's the main thought that she holds on to. And it gives her... Hope and says yeah. while she's recovering from this that like it's not her fault. She has nothing to do with it. If yeah. anything, she made it better. Yeah. I mean, I will say that all the arrests could have piled up a little more significantly in front yes. of her brain, but yes. Whatever. <laughs> uh Penny Moorhead mm-hmm. asks Gary Ridgeway, Do you believe in God? And he says, I believed in God off and on, more because of, you know, doing what I was doing less and like the one murder in eighty eight, it was a complete accident. It didn't have to happen. He said he was trying to, quote, get out of it, but I'm guessing the pressure of the search warrant and being tailed got to him. Uh, we're not exactly sure who he's referring to by saying 88. 98. I don't know. He says, well, he does reference later. So there is the Jane Doe that he could be talking about that yeah, is that was dated. Yeah, found in 90, She was found, and they said she went missing or was killed sometime between 73 uh, so, yeah, 73 and 93, or he could be talking about Deborah Estes found in 88. Um, Maybe he meant 98, because that was Patricia, who was 
killed and found literally the same day, like essentially. Oh yeah. And she was in ninety eight. So he might be maybe he meant ninety eight or Well, like I it think was that that's a separate thought because he then references he references ninety nine. Oh and I think that's where that's he means the, oh, her death. Patricia. Okay. Because he says my dad died and that's he gives that as a reason for like I couldn't stop myself because all of these mm. circumstances were too much for me to deal with and it's like I had to go back to my vice. I roll. I know. So, there is one final victim found, which we've been including her in the count that we've been saying thus far. He was charged with 48 murders in 2003. And the final victim that is attributed to Gary Ridgway as of today was Rebecca Marrero. She was found on December 21st, 2010 by hikers near the West Valley Highway in Auburn. Just her skull was found. It was in very close range to where Marie Malvar's remains were found in 2003. It was obviously later identified as Rebecca Marrero, who was 20 when she vanished from the Western Six Motel on South 168th Street in the Pacific Highway. She'd been missing for almost 30 years, disappearing on December 3rd, 1982. Gary Ridgway was finally charged with her death, making it his 49th victim on February 11th, 2011, and he entered a guilty plea on February 18th of that same year. He had already been charged with her murder, like back in 2001, but since her remains were never found during their searches in 2003, it wasn't held up. So the charge was dropped because he did, he pled guilty. Like he said, he confirmed, I killed her and that they couldn't find her remains. So he wasn't actually charged with her murder in 2000, I guess 2001 to 2003. I, at first, like, my initial reaction is I'm confused why they wouldn't continue to charge him anyway, since he admitted to it, but I kind of appreciate that they didn't, just because they can't take him seriously at this point. Yeah. And they don't know if yeah. he's lying. Right, so yeah, yeah. I think I respect that they were like... I, and I think it helps the family, too, like... I mean, I know they had to wait even longer because her remains were not discovered, but it's like, that would suck to be that family where you, she wasn't even found and you're just lumping her in right. with him because he said so. He he couldn't even identify her in a lineup or tell yeah. you her name or tell you what he did to her, really, other than, like, the same thing he did to everyone else. So it's like, do you believe him? So I think it is good that they didn't because then that family didn't, They her case was still open, essentially. Yeah. If they had charged him then it would have been a closed case yeah i mean you can argue that point back and forth for the end of time i mean yeah (laughs) which one would feel better to a grieving family yeah so the remaining victims we're gonna mention um as we've stated a bajillion times we will never know probably just how many women gary ridgeway killed there are still six women on the official green river killer victim list that many believe he is responsible for but because he either refused to confess to their deaths or because there wasn't enough evidence, particularly their remains were never found, he has still not been charged with their deaths. And they are listed as followed in order by their disappearance. So Amina Agashev, she was 35. She disappeared on July 7th, 1982, and her remains were found on April 18th, 1984. Casey Ann Lee, she was 16 when she disappeared on August 28, 1982, and she has never been found. Tammy Lyles, who was also 16, disappeared on June 9, 1983. Her remains were found in April of 1985. 
We've mentioned Kelly K. McGinnis a couple times. She was 18 when she disappeared on June 28th in 1983, and she has still never been found. Angela Marie Gerdner was 16 when she disappeared on July in July of 1983, and her remains were found on April 22nd, 1985. Patricia Osborne, who was 19 when she disappeared on October 20th of 1983, and she has also never been found. So all of these were on the Green River Task Force, like, or Green River Killer list, at the, like, from the beginning, from them going missing, essentially. But they've never been, obviously, charged. Right. So, to bring this nightmare to a close, we've covered the life of Gary Ridgway from his childhood up to his sentencing trial, where he was given 48 life sentences for the murders he committed as the Green River Killer, plus the one we just talked about in making it 49 it's very probable that there are dozens more victims that we may never know about we can only hope for a deathbed confession at this point gary ridgeway didn't just take the lives of 49 women he drastically changed the lives of countless investigators family members and friends of those victims we thought it would be a good way to end this series by taking a moment to read some of the victim impact statements from his sentencing hearing First, we have Kathy Mills, the mother of 16-year-old Opal Mills, who was friends with Cookie. You have held us in bondage for all these years, she intoned, because we hated you. We wanted to see you die, but it's all going to be over now. Gary Leon Ridgway, I forgive you. You can't hold me anymore. The word of God says I have to. Robert Rule, the father of Linda Rule. Mr. Ridgway, he says, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. I forgive you for what you have done. God says to forgive all, so you are forgiven, sir. Sarah King, daughter of Carol Christensen. Never in a million years did I think I would be standing up here facing the man who killed my mother. You're a coward. You have useless excuses for what you have done and no remorse. Sharce Woods Summer, sister of Shonda Summers. The same lives you took seem to be the same lives saving yours. I find that very ironic. Murdy Winston, mother of Tracy Winston, said she hoped it was true, that her daughter Tracy didn't have to look at him when she died. She said, I think the one thing that bothers me, other than the fact that Tracy has gone from our lives, is that you don't remember her, and she thought of you as a friend. Joan Mackey, the mother of Cindy Smith. Well, Mr. Ridgway, maybe you'll remember my daughter Cindy when the door slams on your face in prison. At the end of the statements, Judge Richard Jones asked Ridgway to turn to the courtroom and look at the faces of those left behind, devastated by his actions. As you spend the balance of your life in that tiny cell, surrounded by only your thoughts, Jones said, please know the women you killed were not throwaways or pieces of candy in a dish placed upon this planet for the sole purpose of satisfying your murderous desires. And thus, Gary Ridgway sits in prison. To this day. He's bald. He's getting fat. He's disgusting. And he'll die there. Yes. Yes, he will. Thanks for sticking with us. Thank you, you guys. What is probably <laughs> close to 10 hours of audio on this case? A lot. This has been a lot. I have mm. never immersed myself in anything this in-depth. Me either. And we're still not done with it. Um... I'm going to, to hold myself accountable, announce that I'm building a space for all of this to live online. 
So hopefully we can really plug in our sources and make it kind of interactive so we can find different ways to showcase the timelines Mm -hmm. and have a different space for the story of each victim to live. Yes. I think that's important. Yeah. And that way we can link all the images back in a way that is legal and it's not just us posting them on our website or on our social media. Yeah. Then we can give everyone access to all of our sources and then you can rent them, buy them, whatever you need to do to read everything for yourself. Yes. So So, while we're all in quarantine, that's what we can work on. Oh, God. And with that, since this has been such an insane thing, we are taking a couple weeks off. We're going to spatter in some (laughs) normal content that's a little more lighthearted maybe than this. Yes. That's just like one episode things to get us up to our next multi-part series. Yes. Which will not be seven episodes long. No, it will not. (laughs) And we're not telling you what it is yet. It's a one-time thing for you people. We're not doing this again. (laughs) And with that, I think that's all we have. We'll keep you updated. Follow us on social media to keep updated of like when we'll be back with some normal content. Because we are going to take a couple weeks break. Yes. To prepare for the next little series. Mm -hmm. And uh, to adhere to all the guidelines coming down on us from the government. To uh, stay inside and distance. Stick with us because by the time this episode is out, we might all actually be quarantined in our house. So if that happens, stick with us with like recording and how it might sound. <laughs> yeah, updates <laughs> in to come. The future. We're trying to make plans in advance and figure out yes. how we can. So we're prepared. That's, right on cue. That's good noise. Right on okay. cue. Sirens. <laughs> well, everybody stay safe. Yes. Um, go watch something that is the direct opposite of what we've been doing to you yeah. for the last Please do two that. months. Yes. And hail Satan. We're here to keep you up at night. Wait, wait, what? what? Oh, God. <laughs> we're not going to end this. Wait, do we clink and then say? No, no, we're here to keep you up at night. Clink. Hail Satan. And pop some bottles. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we're here to keep you up at night. Hail Satan. And pop some bottles. <laughs> I have sad. a sad can. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Goodbye, guys. Thank you. Bye. Sources for this episode include Green River Running Red by Anne Rule, Chasing the Devil by Sheriff David Reichert, Green River Serial Killer, Biography of an Unsuspecting Wife by Penny Moorhead, Serial Murderers and Their Victims, 6th Edition by Eric W. Hickey, The Prosecutor's Summary of Evidence, an article for the News Tribune by David Quigg titled A Different View of the Ridgeway Family, posted on December 20, 2001, and an assessment from Bradford University Psychology Department put together by Brenda Lackey, Carly Jones, and Julie Johnson. An article from Katherine Ramsland, PhD from Psychology Today on the Triad of Evil. For a full list of other sources used for this series, please see our show notes. To join us for a more thorough discussion on the authors and the journalism surrounding the Green River case, you can find us on Patreon for bonus episodes at patreon.com slash deathbychampagne.